Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Greenline offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Nigel Greening had a number of careers, blues guitarist, designer, an event organiser, among other things, before he bought Felton Road in New Zealand in 2000, selling almost everything he had to do so. Listen to his chat about the climate and terroirs of central Otago, his views on biodynamics, his love of Pinot Noir, and why he's such a passionate cook. Hello, Nigel. How are you? How are you doing, Tim? Oh, it's so lovely to hear your voice. I mean, this is a big week for you guys. This is the 25th anniversary, right? Yeah, we've got them. We're doing more dining than, I don't know, you know, kind of Roman emperors. Um, so it's a bit hard on the digestion, but we're absolutely loving it. No, it's, I mean, it's what a, what a milestone. It's amazing, isn't it? And you've been involved for 22 of those 25 years with Felton Road, yeah? Yeah, it, I find it really strange. I think one of the things that has struck me right from the beginning is as soon as you start to farm, time takes on a different structure. You kind of engage and your gears lock into the seasons. And it's some age-old thing. And the years just flick by, just yeah. one to the next to the next. And suddenly you think, oh, my God. Um, or maybe it's just I'm getting old. I think it's true of all of us, isn't it? I find that you suddenly think, shit, where did the last three years go? Exactly. Anyway, listen, I want to ask you a little bit about your upbringing, because it's really interesting. You know, you were born in, in Yorkshire, weren't you? I mean, obviously people will know not listen, uh, who are, don't live in England, though that's in England. Um, was just was wine part of your life growing up? I mean, Yorkshire in those days, in the 50s and 60s? And not at all. My, well, yes and no. In the, My parents both came from working-class backgrounds, um, my mother was the one from Yorkshire. My father was from South of England. Um, neither of them had anything like that in their background at all. But they were both quite adventurous types. And as they gradually got a little bit more money, as life went on and my dad's job paid a little bit better, um, you know, they were buying bottles of Matisse Rosé and they were making pies and thinking they were the height of sophistication. Eating avocado pears. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, this was cutting edge stuff. And so, yeah, they worked for their time. They were adventurous. And then my dad started doing a lot of work in Germany. So then he started to see quite a lot of good German Riesling. And he'd try and buy German wines here. But in those days, the German wines we got here weren't exactly kind of, <laughs> a lot of what meat. he was enjoying when he was over in the kind of <laughs> Rheingau or something. Oh, then you, I mean, you went to university to study to study uh, um, biochemistry, and then you gave up, you know, within weeks to play the guitar to be a blues guitarist. I mean, uh, what happened? It was it. The whole thing was a disaster. Um, I got assigned to a college in the Elephanton Castle because the university I was going to was being built and it wasn't finished yet. And in my naivety, I found a flat in Finsbury Park. So I had to travel the whole way across London to get there. When I got there, 
as soon as the lectures were over, I had to jump on the tube to get back because it took so long. So I never got to know anybody, and I hated it. And to be honest, I was in London and playing guitar, and it was 1968. It was a good time to be doing that. And it got about six weeks in, and I thought, bugger it, I'm going to give the guitar a go and see, see if I can make that work more than the biochemistry. And what was your band called? Um, I had three or four. Um, we had a band called George's Boys that we played in. And in fact, I played in that in America for a while, but that's another story. Um, and then several kind of joining up and trying out with different people here, there and everywhere. But finding somebody who can actually pay you um, or had enough that it was financially viable because I had no money at all. And did you see some of the great bands? Did you see the Stones? Oh, like that in the yeah. I first saw the Stones actually in October 1964. Wow. My, my sister knew the Stones, and she took me to my first ever gig, and I stood on the side of the stage watching these guys going at it at their absolute peak of, you know, early Stoneshood, thinking, bugger me, this is different. <laughs> and... It was great, actually, because, oh, about 15 years ago, I saw Bill Wyman after one of his concerts, and we were chatting, and I told him when I'd first seen him in 1964, and he thought for a moment, and he said, October the 21st. He knows every single gig he's ever played, <laughs> and he's, you know, in those days, he was already over 70. <laughs> So you didn't make it as a blues guitarist, nah. you know, which was wine's gain and music's loss, I suppose, although you still play guitars, we'll find out. Yeah, later. I do a bit. Yeah. I mean, you went into this very diverse career. You know, you were, you were in printing, you were in design, you were in marketing, you were in film, photography, event organisation, although most of those things are, 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 are related in a sense. Yeah. I mean, what's been useful about that time when you came to apply it to the wine business to, to, to running Club and Rome? There were two things that were actually ended up being key although at the time of course I never knew I might be heading in the wine direction I learned an awful lot about brands from some of the the top brand gurus on the planet which was incredibly valuable um, it taught me what not to do um, within wine it taught me that the one thing I must never do was to take Falcon Road when I acquired it and to try and turn it into a cool brand. That always fails. The key of a brand is it has to be honest. Yeah. Above all, it's about a truth. It's not about an artifice. And so what you don't do is try and make something into a brand. You make something really good and then you hope people themselves turn it into the brand. Then it's the real thing. It's interesting. I did interview Sir John Hegarty, the advertiser. Yeah, I know John. You know. Yeah, and, and he he said exactly the same thing. He said, "I mean, it's, it's paradoxical in a way, but or, or some people might think it's ridiculous. But advertising has to be honest. That people in the end have to buy into the yeah. into the brand, you know, the brand yeah. and the story. Otherwise, it doesn't work." Yeah, and it drove John Army in his early days because wine the wine world isn't like any other commercial world because mm. we all know each other and mm. we're all mates and we all work together mm. and whereas in everywhere else we're all, everybody competes yeah and he just couldn't get his head around the idea <laughs> that you know the wine world wasn't a competitive one we all conspired with each other to kind of keep <laughs> the whole thing going he, 
he, he, he was mystified. <laughs> exactly. And you sold your business that you eventually set up called, I think, rather grandly, Park Avenue Productions. Yeah, um, I'll tell you about the name. Good story with the name. We called it Park Avenue simply because we wanted, wherever we were working in the world, we wanted to be a global agency. We wanted it to be a name that was easy to pronounce mm. and almost everybody would understand what it meant, regardless of the language. Mm. So it was that was the thinking. It was a kind of reference point everyone could get. And, and, and then you moved to New Zealand, didn't you, for a year? What made you move to the other end of the world? Um, I just knew I didn't want to die in a 747 when I was kind of 65. And it, it wasn't... I also... I was starting a new family. And I... Yeah, I was just thinking a little bit more about what might be more a viable thing to do as a family thing rather than just my job. Yeah. And I'd had some fantastic conversations um, with a guy called Oliver Sparrow, who was director of Chatham House, and he told me an awful lot about the next millennium and an awful lot about what we're seeing now, all this chaos today was stuff he was discussing and explaining why it was destined to happen. And he gave me some really good clues as to, you know, what will work in the future. And one of the things he said was, you know, the future belongs to artisans. And that was really interesting. And I wasn't an artisan then, but then when I started to become interested in wine, I looked at it and I thought, oh, yeah, that's being an artisan, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, Oliver said that was good. <laughs> and so there were a few things like that that kind of gave me encouragement instead yeah. of my just saying, I'm mad, don't <laughs> I'm you mad. lose all your money. I mean, you know, and you'd been there a year in New Zealand, I think, and you, you had a yeah. kind of eureka moment, which was tasting a bottle of wine, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a weird one. I was driving down the road, listening to the radio, and a report came on, there'd been a big wine show in New Zealand the night before, and the guy who'd won the trophy had never made a wine before and knew not a lot about it. He was pretty much an amateur. Um, that was interesting because I was thinking about would I dare do it and thinking, well, as an amateur, I'd just fail. Mm. And then when I heard who he was, I realised I'd be going within about 300 metres of where we lived. And so on a complete whim, I kind of turned off and knocked on his door and said, hello, can we have a chat? And I asked him about it. I tried the wine, which was really good. And I came to realise that actually it wasn't rocket science in quite the way I'd imagined. And as an amateur, you could have a crack if you did your homework hard enough. Ironically, it didn't work for him. He never made another one. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> he was he was the one bottle wonder, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, what was the first vineyard you bought? Mm, oh, the, my last day in New Zealand of that year, last afternoon, um, we came to what you might term shit or get off the pot time, where I'd been looking at properties, and I knew if I'd gotten a plane back home without buying something, that'd be it. I'd never come to it. And I bought an apricot orchard called Cornish Point. Um, and I bought it largely on the strength that in the area, all the farmers' wives said the best tasting apricots in the area came from Cornish Point. 
And if apricots taste good, wine should taste good. Yeah, that's a very good tip. And what made you choose central? Just the, was it the, was it the fact that this you tasted this dry gully wine or what? It was because I was living there. Oh, right, yeah. And um, nobody knew about central. I mean, at this point, um, central as a wine was pretty much completely obscure. There had been one or two write-ups. Genesis had done little write-ups. Tiny things, but nothing of any note. And so it was kind of, wow, I'm here and nobody knows about it. You're in the right time at the right place. And I did... I mean, Ripon existed, did it, or not? Ripon? Oh, yeah. There were about... At that point, there were about six wineries, seven wineries. Um, But I knew about Pinot. I'd been a Pinot drinker ever since I could afford to be in my 20s. And, of course, in those days, you could afford to be a Pinot drinker a lot more easily than you can today. (laughs) It's a kind of exalted world these days. I feel your pain. (laughs) For people listening who've never been to New Zealand, and Central is one of the most beautiful places on Earth, it really is, just tell us a little bit about, about where it is and the soils and the climate, uh, because it's, it's, it's unique, isn't it? Yeah, it's the f- first and most interesting thing to say is it's bang in the middle of South Ireland, which is the bigger of the two islands. And this is in the deep south of New Zealand in general, where almost we're 400 metres, 500 metres off being on the 45th parallel just below it and that's really important because that puts you in the middle of the roaring 40s these endless westerly winds that hurtle around the world and they're very very important now because the cause of those isn't climate the cause of those is the rotation of the earth and because the earth is still spinning at the same speed climate change isn't changing the biggest factor that's driving our weather I didn't know that would be important then, but it's becoming very important now. Hmm. Yeah, but there is a hole in the ozone layer, isn't there? Over that, the that, was a, that was an interesting myth, actually. Ah, um, the, there is a hole in the ozone layer over the South Pole. And ah. because our UV was so extraordinarily high, the assumption from everybody, including the scientists, was, oh, it must be the hole and that's helping letting the UV through. And what we learned since was it wasn't that at all. We've got some of the cleanest air in the world with the lowest dust of any air in the world. Mm. And so the UV comes straight through because none of the dust stops it. How interesting. And and the soils are metamorphic mostly, aren't they? Yeah, they're very, very interesting from our point of view because they are metamorphic, but we have less benches in one or two locations, including around us. And Lurs is a windblown soil. It's quite a rare soil. We only get it in mountains because it's the windblown glacial flower from away from the glaciers. You'll see it in Austria. There's Lurs and some of the great vineyards there. Um, but not many places where you find it around the world. And with us, we get it combined with something called pedogenic lime, which is a very, very um, rare form of calcium seams in the soil, um, which is most prevalent actually in Antarctica. And Antarctica's wine regions will be quite a long while off yet. So 
us and parts of Patagonia yeah. are the only places that actually get this pedogenic lime. And it's very important because for us it gives very fine soils, almost clay soil, mixed with um, calcareous seams, and that's taking you to Burgundy. Which is not a bad place to be. Really, not a bad it? place to be. It's not the same as Burgundy soil, but in terms of its um, chemical makeup, it's surprisingly close. I mean, how come you, you, you bought Felton Road in 2000? Because you were aware of Felton Road, weren't you? When you and you sort of looking over the fence, weren't you? In, yeah, with... I bought. I knew. I knew. I knew Felton Road. I think Blair claims I was the biggest private buyer of Felton Road by that point. I was certainly spending a bit on it. This is Blair Walter, your, yeah. your winemaker. Yeah. yeah, and it was always clear from day one that Stuart had been the only person before we started designing a vineyard who had actually really designed a vineyard rather than buy a piece of land and run some vines on them. And this is Stuart Elms, who was yeah. the owner of Felton Road before yeah. you, yeah? Stuart had been to university as a mature student to learn about viticulture, and he had really understood that he needed every detail to run his way to make the best wine. And you, you just looked at the vineyard and you know, wow, why has he chosen that angle there? What's that following? Why are there no vines in that gap? You realise here's a man who really thought very, very hard about vineyard design. So from day one, I'd be looking over the fence and thinking, what can I learn here? <laughs> but also, I just recognised this was definitely going to be really good because the guy doing it had put a lot of thought and effort into yeah. it. I mean, you know, you'd made some money, obviously, from selling your business, but it was still a big risk for you, wasn't it? I mean, I think you kept your house yeah. and everything else you sold to put it on the line, really. Yeah, I never... It happened in a huge hurry. Um, Stuart hadn't been intending to sell it. He'd wanted his daughter to take it over. She'd said no. They'd had a big row, and he just said, right, I'm selling the bloody thing. And so I got a phone call saying Stuart's put this on the market and he's planning to sell. And I didn't, I was in the UK. I didn't even think about it. I said, go out to Stuart's house, tell him, don't sign anything. I'm coming to have a conversation. And I got off the phone and I said to my wife, I'm sorry, I've got a flight in New Zealand tomorrow. Um, I might be spending all our money. <laughs> and she was so cool about it. She said, that's fine, dear. You know, I'm sure it'll be all right. <laughs> she didn't at once even say be careful. And in the end, yeah, I swapped essentially Felton Road for everything I owned but my house. Wow. And I had sworn blind to myself. Just it was to me it was a sacred rule I wouldn't do something like that. <laughs> I had seen people who'd made enough to retire and then do something silly and blow it. Mm. And I thought I'd never be that. So you, you were, and then I did it. <laughs> but as it happened, um, the bet paid off. And 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 Pinot was the focus from the start. And you've already said you were you were a Pinot drinker, presumably still from yeah. Burgundy in those days when yeah. we could both still afford it. Yeah. Um, was Pinot the focus at Felton Road in those days? Yeah, it was. Um, the whole point with Central Otago is for one one or two reasons, some of which we now understand, some of which are still mysteries. Mm. Pinot just loves growing in Central. It's very hard to grow in some places in the world. It's it's like it's its native home. 
And so the people who tried it immediately recognized this very relaxed way that it settles in and grows in a very natural, contented way, you could mm. say. So that had been definitely Stuart's own. Mm. Um, Blair had done most of his winemaking training around the world on Pinot and Chardonnay. He started in Chardonnay in Napa, where he turned up... This good story, this. There's Blair, out of university, all his... He'd done a little spell in University of Oregon, had all these mates in California from uni. He said, come over, it's really cool here, it's all happening. Gets in the plane, turns up in a bar in Napa one evening on his own. Guy sits down next to him, asks him what he's drinking, they get chatting, they chat for about two hours. And at the end of which, he says to Blair, look, here's my card, give me a call, come round in the morning. We should keep talking. And it was John Kongsgaard, well, who was winemaker at Newton. Yeah. And he decided he needed someone to take over white winemaking. The next day, he appointed Blair. So he'd been in Napa 24 <laughs> hours, and he got what at the time was probably the hottest <laughs> white winemaking job in California. <laughs> you know, that was the top Chardonnay in Napa in those days. Oh, and, I mean, how do you do that? He's, but, but he's got he's got a charming smile, you know, he, and he's a very charming human being. Yeah, nice Blair. That's why jo John John always describes him as being the smartest winemaker he's ever met, <laughs> and Blair is very very intelligent. But he, yeah, John just looked at him and trusted him and thought this yeah. guy gets it, and that was good enough for John. And how many pinots do you make now? Because you're about to bring out a new one, aren't you? Yeah, we well six, including the new one. And when I started. We had three. We had Block 3 and Block 5 and what we now call Bannockburn, which is our village wine. Bannockburn's the village we're in, so we're a bit Burgundian like that. Um, and then in about 2007, we added Calvert and Cornish Point. We already owned the vineyards, but we didn't make a single vineyard wine until we felt we properly understood what Cornish pointness was and Calvertness was. <laughs> because if you don't understand the vineyard flavour-wise, what's the point of making wine? No, it's I just think a name. It means nothing. No, I think you're right. And you've mentioned, you've mentioned Chardonnay. You also yeah. make a bit of Riesling, don't you? Are those the, yeah. uh, the two white wines you make? Yeah, the Riesling was there from the start. And luckily, Blair really loves Riesling, and I really love Riesling. So it's, there's not a great economic case for it mm. because it's Riesling. Um, Inspired by your dad, maybe, in his visit to Germany. Well, yeah, I could be a nod to my dad, couldn't it? But, of course, as you know, even when you are a master of Riesling, the prices you command are almost pitiful compared to what great Chardonnays and great Pinots fetch, yeah. which is a great shame because the wines are great enough to deserve it. Mm. And... We'll never make those great Rieslings, but, um, you know, it. the economic sense will be to plant Pinot. But what Stuart saw, and this was a real measure of why he was so good at this, when he looked at the soil types, we had three soil types, and there was alluvial soils, which he thought would be right for Chardonnay, the pure Lurse, which was for Pinot, and then we had these schist gravels, and schist looks very like slate. Mm. They're very similar geologically. 
And when we show those shift gravels to guys from the Rosal, they look at them and they say, that's like I saw it. <laughs> and we've even got the blue type and the red type like they have. So Stuart had looked at it. He'd been to the Mosul and he thought, this looks like German Riesling soil. I should put some Riesling in there. So he was he was really thinking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, so he did, you know, he did some of the work for you, a lot of the work for you in terms oh. of the site. I know, you know it's yeah. a very special site. Look, there's no question the site was intrinsically a great site. He'd, he'd chosen it carefully. Stuart knew that to be in central Otago at that point was like having a blank treasure map. You had to look at it and try and figure out where the treasure was buried because you could buy almost anywhere. But he knew only a very few places would be the kind of blue end of the monopoly board, if you like, in white yeah. terms. The, the Grand Cru, the, the Park yeah. Lane of the Park <laughs> Lane. <laughs> okay. I mean, tell me a bit about Blair because I love Blair. He's such a, a charming guy. And he was there when you took over. So Stuart had given him a job, presumably from the start. And you two always seem to work very well together. I mean, how do you explain yeah. that? chemistry. I mean, do you ever have, do you have a crossword with each no. other? I mean, you always seem so amenable, Blair. No, no. Um, we, we, can, we can have, I suppose, firm discussions where we both, you know, take a different point, but we've never, ever fallen out. And it's just from day one, it was a given understanding that Blair wanted to make this his life's work. He... Yeah had been, he doesn't come from a grand background, he's a farmer's son, um, very much a person of the soil. And his training in Burgundy, had, which, you know, he regards very much as his spiritual kind of background in that sense, rather than California, had always been with this idea of families and it becomes your life work and your winemaker till you, you die in harness or you know, the next generation steps in almost. And so it's always kind of been an unspoken understanding we have. Yeah, that he and would stay. He, that he would want, certainly want to stay and I'd want to, him always to stay. And yeah. the he's a bewilderingly clever person in operationally. You know, he wears about six hats. He's sales manager, he's COO, he's winemaker. Um, in the afternoon, he's probably he's got three or four other jobs. He never makes mistakes. He's he's yeah. uh, great winemakers make very few mistakes. Um, he's able to push close to the line and be daring when he wants to be, but he knows exactly when to stop and he might go too far. Tell me a bit about farming because you started out farming organically as soon as you took over and then you've been certified biodynamic I think since April 2006 I just wonder what made you make the switch it's very interesting listening to you talk about this about I mean these slightly loopy ideas that Steiner had and yet there's brilliance in there as well isn't there these nuggets are brilliant yeah yeah it, it's in I knew nothing about Steiner when I started um other than I'd heard of biodynamic producers and burgundy because the first few were around then we all wanted to go organic. Um, that was just a given. On the day I bought it, when Gareth Blair and I sat down, Gareth, as you know, is vineyard manager, senior viticulturist, whatever you want to call him, um, we all had pretty much top of our list, this has to go organic. Um, 
But I hate the philosophy of organics because it. when I worked with the car industry, as I did for a long time, I was appalled by the fact that quality control was driven by an ethos of zero defects because there was this idea that if you did nothing wrong, then you'd made something of quality. And I thought that was utter nonsense. You can make perfect rubbish with zero defects. Quality is about the <laughs> qualities you inject in, not about the defects you remove. And the defects you remove should be a default. That takes you to mediocrity. Then you're looking, where are the qualities? And that was my problem with organics. It was a list of stuff not to do. It was the zero defect school of being better farmers. And biodynamics was crazy. It was crackpot. There was some stuff that was definitely there that shouldn't, you know, no, no wise person would follow the directions. You know, I sometimes describe Steiner as a man well suited for the jacket that does up the back. But, um, <laughs> but Steiner, for all of those, he had great ideas and he had some really important insights. He was the first person who suggested that what happened underground in the soil would be the most important part of growing and that yeah. the microbial world and the things that were too small to see would probably be more important than things that were higher up or at least if deserved equal status to everything else. So he was and absolutely he was right. right. He he got a lot of this stuff. And given when he did this, he was the first person to actually talk about what later became organics. So, yeah, he has a lot going for him. So I will kind of turn a blind eye to his weirder stuff. Bec to the, the, the bladders well, in the trees? Or I, they're like good fun. Look. It's, yeah. There's not much on telly in Central Otago, so stuffing stags' <laughs> bladders with yellow flowers in a, of an evening, you know, there's, there were worse things to do. Um, but it's they're actually interesting too. I, I struggle with um, astrological calendars. Hmm. We've played with them a lot and we can't see anything that works for us. But interestingly, you stuff a stag's bladder with yarrow flowers, leave it to ferment, and then take some of that dissolved in spring water and violently oxygenate it, which is what you have to do. You go count the bugs in there. It's an amazing microbial soup. It's a bug farm, is it really? It's a bug farm. Yeah. And all those um, supposed um, homeopathic level additions, they're not homeopathic at all. By the time you've made them, you count the bugs in them. They're absolutely cruel. <laughs> Swarming with them. Yeah. And then you use it to inoculate 100 tonnes of compost in the heap. That's like pouring the bugs on a petri dish. <laughs> so a little goes a long way. So, yeah, I, the preps are interesting. They're not the only answers, but they're interesting. And I like your description as well of, of that type of farming as negotiation with nature rather than a dictatorship. Um, is that one of the reasons you switched as well? That's Nick Mills, you know. Ah. Nick's a wise man. Mm. And he's, you know, Ripon has always been a source of inspiration for me. I used to live on the edge of the vineyard there. And it was Nick who talked about negotiating with the land. 
and I think you know he'd always say look you're no bit of land wants five thousand vines putting on it mm. you know that's a given so you have to go along and say look I'm really sorry I think I'm going to have to do this what can I do to make it up to you and I just thought that's it he's got it no, <laughs> very pragmatic, isn't it? I think I like that a lot. Yeah, you're almost asking the vineyard permission before you yeah. meet them. Yeah. Tell me something. I want to just ask you whether you think Felton Road has a style. And you're celebrating the 25th anniversary this week, and you guys have been involved for well, you've been involved for 22 years, Blair for all 25. Just wonder how the style has changed, if at all, or is it still reflecting the vineyards you saw on that first day? Yeah. Well, first of all, yes, it does. I think. I think actually all grape wineries have a house style. Mm. And even though people say Pinot's about place, Pinot's about winemaker more than place. Um, it's both, but the winemaker is very much the icing on the cake. Mm. And um, all the great burgundies I see have very distinctive house styles. Loire has a house style. Rousseau has a house Dujac has a house style. Yeah. Dujac certainly has a house style. <laughs> yeah. um, but the um, a nice one, I'm like, and I'm not. That's not a pejorative comment, Jeremy. Um, but um, the the truth of the matter is, house style is important. It's part of the kind of matrix. And in the early days, I'm afraid we listened too much to wine critics. Hmm. And the various experts. How dare come you? Around. Well, they'd come around and they'd always tell you, hang time. It's about hang time. You've got to hang the fruit. The longer you hang the fruit, the better it is. It took us quite a long time to realise hang time was about the worst thing we could do to Pinot in Central Italy. What do we know, eh? <laughs> well, the trouble is. Well, not much about winemaking is the, the, is point the honest is, answer. The truth <laughs> of the matter is, hang time actually used to work pretty well in Burgundy when they had mainly clonal makeups in there that were struggling to ripen. And no sunshine. And, so, and the winemakers would always tell the critics, this is what's important, yeah. and they'd pass the good news. Mm. But where we were, because of our incredibly high UV, we got mm. phenolic ripeness very easily. We got very high mm. sugars very easily. Yeah. So mm. despite the fact we weren't as warm as Burgundy, we were getting all of those things almost too early and we'd have mm. to wait for physical ripeness. So the last thing we needed was hang time. So mm. it took us till about 2000, 2012 was the vintage where we looked at 11, where we'd been forced to pick early by weather conditions. And we'd kind of, to begin with, been pissed off. Then we got quite excited by some things we were seeing. Mm. We thought, hang on. We've been getting this wrong. And 12, we went significantly earlier. And that changed the style, did it? Yeah. And then we did the same with Chardonnay. Um, not with Riesling. Riesling's a different beast. But then you had to dial in, where's that perfect early point where you've got perfect physical ripeness, the lowest alcohol you can achieve, and the lowest fruit, lowest flavour ripeness. You want just that perfect point of flavour ripeness. But for us, we'll have too much of it by the time we get physical ripeness. Yeah. So physical ripeness is our key. The day we've got lignification on the seeds, mm. that fruit has to come in. Mm. And so 
that was the end of vineyard lunches and things like that. <laughs> you know, the leisure, let's all vineyard sit lunch. around. I know, but the days when we just sit around and have fun and harvest took three weeks were over and it's the hell we've got to get this in in 11 days or we're absolutely buggered. And, you know, that's life now. It's not as, we still have a great party at the end, but it's about precision and speed. It's not as glamorous, but it makes much better wine. Tell me a little bit about one of your other great passions, because you actually, you know, you, you wanted to be a blues guitarist and you now still play guitar most days, I think, don't you? But you actually make rather beautiful guitars, you know, semi-acoustic, acoustic guitars in this workshop you've got down in Devon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, do guitars have terroir? Because I know you're very specific about where you select the wood. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I am. I, I suppose I got into the idea of sustainability of wood especially because a lot of guitars are made of tropical woods. It's a huge thing. And sustainability is one of my kind of bugbears. And I just started liking the idea. I'd had a couple of bits of wood offered to me where the person offering could tell me the actual tree it came from mm. and the story of that tree and the story of how and why it died. And that was suddenly quite interesting because... Yeah if you know that a tree was felled for a good reason and why and where it was felled, then you know whether it was sustainable or not. Mm. And so I got into that and then I started looking more and more. And these days I've got quite a nice stock of things like I have um, ancient Californian redwood that's from a tree that was two and a half thousand years old. Wow. But it was felled by lightning 120 years ago. So it wasn't an act of a human being, you know. I've also got a lightning-felled lightning cedar of Lebanon that used to belong to the Queen. Um, she's got a dining table made of it, and I've got a dining table made <laughs> off the same board. Oh, I you know. haven't turned it into a guitar then? Oh, no, I've made it, made three guitars from it as well. <laughs> um, but So I love that idea of you find a piece of wood and it, the, you've got the story of the wood. You know the tree it came from. I've got London Plains from Berkeley Square, from which I made a guitar called Nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I love that kind of idea. Oh, I love it. I mean, apart from playing the guitar, and you're a great cook. I mean, you, you, you know, anybody who's ever been to Felton cooking. Road and enjoyed eating your food has been great. I mean, how else do you get away from wine? I know that you're very sociable and you've got this idea that, Drinking wine on your own is a bit sad, and it's all about friendship and and, and conviviality. Anything else you do, or is that? Though, I mean, you've got so much going on in your life. You're pretty well, busy. <laughs> I think I think the that that the thing you're referring to there was a point that I raised in a piece I wrote, which was actually at the time it was more about people who kind of don't drink to learn. But, um, you know, people who drink their own wine, you often see in the wine business, you know, you own a vineyard, so you must drink your wine all the time. I never, ever drink Felton Road other than when I have to professionally because it's my job like yours. Yeah. I've got to know what the world's doing. Yeah. And if I'm not tracking fantastic stuff around the world and there's, as you know, an almost limitless supply and you and I see each other quite a lot at tastings and things and, it's 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 my job in one way as much as it is of yours. Yeah. So I regard wine drinking wine as a professional requirement, and I probably regard it much the same way you do. 
That's what we tell other people anyway, right? <laughs> well, as you know, one of the great ones with this is one of the first things you say to somebody else who's in that business is, what's your fridge wine? You know, kind of, what, what's the thing that doesn't cost a fortune that's always on the shelf? Right. And, you know, they're more, that's more valuable intel than, you know, oh, what was that DRC that you got to drink like or anything like that? And none of that nonsense. No, I, I want to know right. what's in your fridge. Uh, what's, in, what's in your fridge? I love that. I think it's a great thing on which to end. <laughs> Nigel, look, many congratulations on the 25th anniversary this week. Thank um, you. Looking forward to seeing you again very soon over lunch. And thanks so much for sharing your views and, and, and your sense of humour and just this amazing story that you've been through to set up one of the great wineries of the world well done you many thanks tim see you tomorrow bye take care i think we can agree that music's loss is definitely wine's gain and at least nigel is still playing every day as well as making instruments next week on cork talk my guest is duncan savage from savage wines in south africa see you then thanks for listening to cork talk if you want to read more reports articles and tasting notes by me go to my website timatkin.com you can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.